talking all things pinball and arcade across New Zealand and beyond. You are listening to Simon's Pinball Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of my Pinball Podcast. Today I am speaking to David Kildare, who not only has a love of pinball and arcade, but also of cinema. He has been a projectionist since he left school, um, and he got into operating in Melbourne with his brother, and uh, they were quite active around the city and had lots of um, amazing locations, which he is going to talk about Um, He also, 20 years ago, bought a drive-in movie complex, and I was quite amazed at just how many drive-in theatres there were across Australia. It was quite a cultural phenomena. So please sit back and enjoy the interview with David. This is the fourth and final interview I did on my recent trip to Melbourne, and I hope you do enjoy the chat. Thank you. So I'm here in Melbourne, I've had a lovely holiday uh, hanging out in Melbourne meeting some collectors. I'm on to my fourth interview. I didn't think this interview was going to happen but then I had a late um, email just the other night from David Kildare and um, we managed to tee it up. I'm flying out this afternoon. Here's an interview, my fourth interview um, happening this morning at his drive-in movie complex in Dandenong. Welcome David. Thank you Simon and I hope I don't force you to miss your plane. (laughs) <laughs> I've, I've given myself enough, it's an hour from here to the airport. It is, yeah, an hour. And you know what, at the airport up until recent years, the last 10 or 15 years, there were stacks of pinballs at Melbourne Airport. If you visited in the 70s, 80s or 90s, there was plenty of them. So Wow. We had a similar thing in Wellington. We had a, a Dutch operator who, who had um, games there. I'm hoping to do a little article, and he's passed away now, but I'm hoping to so, do a retrospective yeah. on him. Uh, but yeah, thank you for talking, and um, so let's give, give some context. Uh, so when, when were you born? 4th of April, 1966. 66, okay, a 60s child. And you got into pinball from a young age? Yeah, well, they fascinated me. I was interested in most things around me, like we travel a lot in the car, and I would always be looking out the windows, looking into shops, looking at anything from drive-ins to cinemas to trams in the city and one thing I noticed I can actually remember at a set of traffic lights in inner Melbourne in Brunswick where we would turn the corner heading into the the city the CBD area uh, there was a fish and chip shop on that corner and when we passed it at night you could always see two pinballs in now I, I reckon I was six or seven or eight when I noticed these and the place we were heading my parents were very good table tennis players they played internationally uh, uh, won many championships uh, here, here locally in Australia as well so we're always going to the Albert Park table tennis center it's now gone it's uh, it went when the Melbourne Grand Prix track was expanded but they had 60 table tennis tables in a main centre court so it was quite a big centre table tennis was big in the 70s and of course they had pinball machines and the older kids that I knew were always playing two things I can remember, they were Gottliebs and they were almost always card themed like 
I imagine these games were from the late 60s, early 70s, but I can always remember seeing jacks and queens and kings. And I didn't play, but I'd watch. And that's how I got interested. I can think of a Gottlieb late 60s card game, Spinner Card. Yeah, that would have been one. I've, I've since looked at them online, ones I haven't owned over the years, and thought, yeah, that's probably one of them. And, of course, every six months they would change. And, and that was close to where you lived? It was, and it was about half an hour's drive. But uh, because I had such up close, I would the players must have hated me because I would peer over the edge of the, the glass with my hands on it and watch the ball and watch what was happening. And I think one day when I was about... Oh, I must have been seven or eight. My mum finally gave me 20 cents to have a game and I really didn't know what to do. I knew you had to hit the flippers and, of course, the ball drained pretty quickly on each ball, but at least I then I thought, oh, I've played pinball. Wow, yeah. what, a, what a memory. That's a very, very accurate memory too. Um, and, and your brother, was he, he was into pinball? Yeah, well? look, he was the same. My brother's a few years younger than me. We're both in our 50s. I have another brother and a sister as well. And, yeah, he, he also became interested because he was a few years younger. Uh, the suburb we grew up in in Melbourne, Reservoir, which is a large northern suburb, again, about half an hour from, from the city, uh, it was a 20-cent tram ride to get into the city, and the tram was close to us, as was the train. But near us in the main shopping strip of Reservoir, uh, I didn't pay much attention to these places when I was in primary school because I went in the other direction and I saw pinballs in fish and chip shops. We passed two or three on the way or milk bars. But once I went to high school in 1978, I noticed that there was an, an espresso bar, Delfino Espresso Bar in Edward Street, which was a, a pool hall coffee house. Um, but it was full of electromechanical gear in that stage. They were just changing over. And in the next block, so literally 100 metres away, was a place called Johnny's Top Room. Now, it was substantial. It had neon script on the big sign at the front, Johnny's Top Room Amusements. And it actually appeared in a couple of uh, Australian... Uh, Crawford's cop police shows as a venue. You know, Reservoir was a very working class suburb, and here was a perfect venue to shoot, uh, to film bad guys. But it also uh, had, uh, it would have had about 25 machines and pool halls. And Delfino Espresso Bar had two pool tables and again about 20 amusements. But it had a jukebox, a Rock Isle jukebox right in the window at the front, which became my favourite all-time machine. And the first one I played in there was Coney Island Rifle by Chicago Coin. I loved the look of that game, the feel. It had an eight-track cartridge playing, like fairground music. And since that time, not only have I loved that game, Coney Island, I've become a student and someone that's researched the actual Coney Island in New York and been there. That's, that's how pinball and amusement machines uh, clicked into my head and broadened my interest to worldwide. So, wow, yeah. wow. I think you've hit upon a point where Melbourne is so much bigger than anything that New Zealand had in terms of a city, like five million approximately in Melbourne, whereas that's, New that's the whole of New Zealand. Right. So you have a lot of choice. You said 25 pinballs and there were other arcades that had similar numbers. Yeah, look, we, we were spoilt. Uh, so we'd go on weekends, you know, I'd have like, the games were still 20 cent play. But I can remember when Space Invaders come in, it was probably 1978, and they had one machine at the Delfino Espresso Bar, and it was so popular after school, and the, got, the kids got so good on it so fast, they'd play, go through about eight different sets of, uh, of the uh, Invaders coming down, and... They, the guy would walk away, take 20 cents that had been put down on the cabinet, and the next guy would just take over the game. <laughs> so the machine wasn't earning the money because the people were taking right. the money and you were using that same 20 cents. These guys were 
I remember how good they were. I was better at pinball, yeah. and they had lots of pinballs there. Yeah. And I did play Space Invaders and then Galaxian and Pleiads. And uh, in Australia, it wasn't called Pac-Man. I'm not sure about New Zealand. We knew it as Ghost Muncher. That's okay. what it was branded as here, Ghost Muncher. No one ever heard of Pac-Man. It was Ghost Muncher. Really? That's on, what, on the splash page, it had Ghost Muncher. Yeah, Ghost there. Muncher. That was oh. the branding. That was So it was either a, a grey import or Australia had, uh, instead of Galaga, a lot of our Galagas were called Gallic, and they were from some copy factory in Japan <laughs> or Taiwan, and uh, a lot of the older operators would remember that this stuff. very enterprising for yeah, Australia. Yeah, very we, we didn't have that. We didn't yeah. have that uh, grey market here in New Zealand, I don't think. Right, Not yeah. That I can well, we had the genuine branded stuff almost in every game, but I never saw a Pac-Man until 10 years later, and I think the first ones I saw or Miss Pac-Man so yeah we had our own um, product line of cabinets which I think Australia did as well yes yeah well Australia's interesting it uh there was a company called Golden West Amusements and they had a showroom on uh, Victoria Street, Abbotsford. And when I say a showroom, this place was as big as a small supermarket full of electromechanicals. Now, they were operators, but they, they were the first big home sellers. And it was on the way to one of my favourite cinemas, the Valhalla in Richmond. So I'd get off the train at Victoria Park just in the Collingwood football ground and I'd have to walk past this place just by chance to get to the Valhalla Cinema for their $1 Saturday matinees. And I'd go in and there was this lady there, uh, very... Um, uh, always very well dressed and groomed and uh, she spoke with an accent and I later learned her name was Wilhelmina Andresi and her husband had started Golden West Amusements which were the biggest and they bought in all these Gottliebs from the US, some Williams, some Bally but mostly Gottliebs and they had these big metal plaques on Golden West Amusements. John would have some on his machine. I've, I've seen them. I took a photo of one, actually. Right, okay. Yeah, and so they had, a, they had a, like a embossed uh, num like correct. A number of the unit type. That's unit right. Number. They had them. He started in Western Australia, I understand, but then they had offices in Perth, Adelaide, Melbourne. He was off the scene by the stage. I got to know Wilhelmina, but she was lovely. She would let me play these games for nothing because they were for people to buy at home, and I couldn't afford to buy one at home. I could barely afford the 40 cents for the train. So... Um, um, I, I later got to know her, and her son was an operator, and we actually bought some equipment off them. So. And they had those plaques because every machine had to be registered. Correct, right? yeah. There, there's been different licensing in different states, and I've got a very interesting, uh, a funny story about registration. I'll, I'll tell you later on when we get into our operating days. But uh, So, you know, this, again, as a teenager, to see all these old electromechanicals, which by the late 70s disappeared fast off sites in Melbourne, all Bally Electronics, Bally Stern, Gottlieb, and, and, and Williams as well of course uh, came in but uh, yeah it was a really interesting time you know we were spoiled listening to stories from other people in other parts of Australia or New Zealand with your podcast Simon and even international we, we had a lot of amusement machines near us yeah. Yeah. And I straight away, I loved the Bally script on a Bally pinball. I loved that script. And I loved Chicago Coin, as far as I was concerned, with the king of the rifles and gun games. And wherever you went to bowling alleys, we went to a bowling alley in the centre of Melbourne, the Southern Cross Hotel, well-known hotel. You know, Beatles, Frank Sinatra used to stay there. Um, and it had a fantastic arcade in the bowling alley full of electromechanical guns and pinballs, and we'd play sometimes there. One day we went, it had burnt down. And we're out the front not knowing what to do. And uh, a guy wandered over and said, oh, bowling alley burnt down. We said, yeah. He said, why don't you go to Mutual Bowl? I said, what's Mutual Bowl? He said, it's down near Flinders Street Station underground. So we went down there and it was a smaller, dingier bowling alley, probably dated from the 50s, but it had even more machines. It had, um, you know, helicopter, you know, land uh, around the world. It had, uh, it had baseball 
machines. It had uh, uh, the one where you push the dirt around. It had Seegers, Cascos, um, Midways. It had all of this stuff that I haven't seen before. And again, it just broadened the horizons in my interest in coin-op further. Well, yeah. So we get into the point where you're going to leave school and you went into projection theatre. Yeah, as look, a projectionist. as much as I love pinball, my, my real love was uh, cinema and movies and film. And a, a family friend gave us an 8mm projector for free. He upgraded to Super 8, so we had his old standard 8 projector. My dad had some old cartoons and newsreels on nitrate film from the 40s because they used to, he, he knew someone at 20th Century Fox and they would give them to kids and they had these little toy projectors they could use. And I was fascinated. We loved going to the drive-in. We were surrounded by five drive-in screens in Reservoir, like... Australia had 350 drive-ins, so outside the US and Canada, nowhere had more drive-ins than Australia. We had lots of land, high car ownership, and good climate, good weather. So um, I could actually see a driving screen out my bedroom window. So it wasn't next door. You need binoculars to see it properly, but you could see it. And um, so, uh, yeah, I knew cinema was where I was going to be. And that's been a parallel interest, if you like, Simon. Well, so. they go together. Um, that's the sort of entertainment industry. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and, yeah. and and your brother was he became a chef, didn't he? Yeah, well, I became a, a projectionist, assistant projectionist, and then projectionist working at city theatres and then drive-ins and then was involved in opening Australia's first multiplex at Chadston. And during this period, my sister used to waitress in restaurants and they were always after kitchen hands. And she said to my brother, oh, you might as well come along. You can chop carrots and wash dishes at the restaurant she was working at. And he was... He must have been about 12 or 13 at the time. I don't think he was 15, but he was young. So he got to understand kitchens very quickly. He, When he left school, he did his, did his chef's apprenticeship. And so we found ourselves, I was working shift work as a projectionist. He was working shift work as a uh, chef. And he'd gone into a fish and chip shop on the side, which I was an investor in, but didn't work in. And it was hard work. It was really hard work. You know, fresh fish, cooked you can't, there's not much prep you can do. It's cooked to water. And so after that, he was looking for something that was a little bit uh, easier. And by this stage, we already owned a few machines. Should should jump back. Um, I wanted to buy Coney Island as soon as I, I could. I wanted to buy Coney Island. And something happened at Johnny's Top Room one day, which got me owning machines into my head. And I didn't know how or where or what, but I knew I wanted to own a machine because I was playing... I can remember the game I was playing. It was a little upright video game called Monaco GP, a car racing game. Might have been an early Sega, but it was colour. Uh, so it would have been about 1980, 81. It was a good, fun game. My mate was playing that. and We would play against each other. He'd have a go, then I'd have a go because it was a timed game. And they had like five electromechanical guns behind us and 15 pinballs. But I can't remember the actual machine, but it was a, like a low machine because I remember seeing this guy come and he used the keys and he had a sack in his hand and he pulled open the cash box and poured it into this bag and I'd never seen so many 20-cent coins in my life. Now, it, to use the saying, the penny had not dropped. I knew you put money into the machine and I thought, that, you know, they felt expensive and I had to make the best of the game to get my money's worth. Um, and it never dawned on me that this was happening day after day, week after week, and then someone was collecting the money. And when I saw that cash, I was always business orientated anyway. I said to my brother, we've got to buy machines. We're on yeah. the wrong, we're on the wrong end of this yeah. business. So 
I bought a Coney Island for $150 with a broken back glass from Leisure and Allied, uh, which is a parent company of Time Zone, of course. And uh, they were they just moved from Brunswick to Northcote, so we're talking 84, 83, 84, and I bought it for $150. I said, I, I keep running in there saying, if you get a Coney Island, let me know. Yeah, yeah, kid. Get a Coney Island, let me know. Yeah, yeah. And I wander in there, and straight away I saw Coney Island, but because the back glass was broken, they didn't recognise it. And I said, what about that one? Oh, yeah, it's got a broken glass. And I didn't tell them it's a Coney Island. I said, oh, how much? Oh, 150 So, got that. Then I bought a, a very early video, another one. I think I got it from someone's garage sale, a Lunar Lander. You know, that video with the sort of uh, laser etched graphics like asteroids? Yeah, yeah. So bought that again. That was probably about uh, not. I don't much. think I've ever seen a Lunar Lander. Yeah, like the actual cabinet. Right. Yeah, they were popular here. This was a dedicated cabinet. It was a good game, and I had that. Um, and then I heard somehow. I think I was in one of the showrooms. I used to bug the showrooms. I'd go to Gunner at Coin Play Sales in Brunswick. Go to these places, wander around. You know, buy a pinball rubber so I wasn't wasting their time and get out. But you know, I was learning. And uh, someone said to me one day, my girlfriend at the time, "There's a." Oh, a pinball auction happening at the showgrounds next week. You can buy machines there. So, okay, so we went along, and I hardly had any money, but I went along. I was working at the time. And I think back now, I thought, I should have bought the floor, should have bought the lot. Anyway, there was a pile of Space Invaders machines there, and uh, they were going auction, $100, $110. Again, this is on a 1984, mm. about that time. And uh, so they'd gone down and everyone was into the newer games and they were going a bit high and I bid and missed. And then it got to the last one. It started off, you know, the, the, the uh, auctioneer was a bit of a crook. $40, no bids, no bids. Instead of going down, he went up. $50, anyone? $60 will buy it. And I put up my hand, sold. So I got a Space Invaders for $60. And because it was my brother's birthday, Matthew, I gave it to him. So then he had the Space Invaders. I had those games. And I remember very early on, because it was played to death, it must have been on 15 hours a day with the two of us, um, the power supply gave out. So we had to take it to somewhere to get repaired, so we took it to Gunner. And that's how we sort of got to know Gunner well. So. Yeah. Well, what a story. And and at some point you decided to put one on a location. Yeah, look, that, that happened. Uh, it, it took quite a few years, actually, and it was a, a video game and it was in a card shop. We've still got the cabinet, but... It, look, it, did, it didn't do well. And by this stage, I'd bought a few more pinballs for home. I had a Matahari and had a few others. And I sort of thought, you know, we, we've got to do this bit better. We couldn't find sites. So the guy, one of the big companies, Leisure and Allied were very big. You know, their ad in the yellow pages was big. But their, the other ad was that was that size was California Enterprises Amusements. And it was run by a guy called Terry O'Hara. And he'd bought it off the original American that had set it up. And I went back through some old phone books and saw their ads went all the way back to the 60s. So they bought in a, a lot of pinballs from the US. They bought a lot of new here as well. And uh, they had all, they had jukeboxes, they had everything. So because I'd bought a few machines off Terry, he was winding his business down. They were massive. They had hundreds of machines all over Victoria. And so I would buy Bally pinballs off him. And um, one day, I, you know, I would ask him, ask him, you know, as he was delivering the game or helping repair it or something, um, you know, I want to get into operating more seriously. And he said, well, I'm winding down, David. He said, I can sell you some sites. So he mentioned this pub. I remember the pub in Brunswick. It was called the Cornish Arms. And he had an upright video game, I think another video, and one pinball. And... I'm trying to remember what the pinball was. I think it'll tell you the time. I think it was mousing around. 
I think. What's it's that late 80s? 89, I think. 89, yeah. Mm. Maybe that wasn't the first, but it could have been. It was around that era, anyway. It was a, it was a System 11, so Williams had bought Bally. Yes, that's right. And it would have been, yeah, it was the the Bally kind of yeah. cabinet. Yeah, it was, oh, actually, I could be wrong. That was another early site. But anyway, Mousing Around was one of the early games that we had. Yeah. And yeah. so we'd buy a pinball, uh, a tabletop video, and a console video. And literally, he charged, charged us just the price of the machines, just plus a very small extra for the goodwill. No contract. Introduced us to the owner. We did this first site, got to know the owner of the pub. The things took some money. You know, it was good. And we thought, gee, this is a good deal. So we did it again. We did it again. We did it again. And time goes by, and we knew Terry had some, uh, California Enterprises had some very big sites, and he was, um, uh, I don't even know whether he's still alive. He was a lovely guy, uh, softly spoken, and he was Scottish. And um, he spoke like this, if I can imitate him, very distinctive. Oh, David, I don't know if I've got any more pinballs I can sell you out there, but I'll have a look for you. So this is how he spoke. And then he, he said, David, I, I found another 20. And we used to joke that he had so many machines out there, he'd forgotten where they all were. You know. So anyway, he rings us up one day and he says, David, I'm going to sell one of my... Uh, a good location. It's the Prince of Wales Hotel in St Kilda. Now, this is into the 90s, peak of the grunge era, and we knew the Prince of Wales Hotel. We'd go to St Kilda and go to Luna Park. I remember as a kid, the penny machines in the Giggle Palace. That was an amusement heaven. Even in the 70s, they had machines on site there from 1895. That's how old these mutoscopes were. And so I got fascinated with old-style shockers and those games from Luna Park. You know, I could, I could spend half an hour on that alone. But anyway, so we knew St Kilda. Terry introduced us to the three owners of the pub, and it was its main band room was held a 1,000. It was a big venue. It had international acts uh, there uh, performing all the time and it had a number of different bars. It's right opposite uh, Luna Park? Uh, right? No, it's, it's further around. It's on, it's on Fitzroy Street, one block up from the beach, on the corner of Ackland and Fitzroy Street. I think Street. I've been there. I've it's been, there, it's yeah. been gentrified. It's all mm. changed now. It's got some very good restaurants in it. It didn't then, I can tell you. This was uh, St Kilda was, the, you know, the, the live music, venue uh, capital probably of Australia like everyone played there you know it's where Nick Cave was playing all the time when he was starting ACDC used to live in a house there you know like this is you know really ground zero for live music so we knew the area um, Terry showed us through the Prince of Wales Hotel and there were some older pinballs and older jukebox record jukeboxes you know we were, it hadn't changed the sort of CD and oh, in fact sorry there was one CD jukebox there so it was just at that period there was one row AMI CD 100 so the first one and so we looked at it all, and he says, uh, David, I want 20000 for it. And, like, there was one, two, three, it was like three jukeboxes there. We'd never operated a jukebox. I knew how to play a jukebox. I love Rockolas and Seabergs and Wurlitzers. I loved them, but uh, operating? So we said no. And then Matthew called me after a few days, and he said, look, um, maybe we should really have a look at this. He said, rather than all these little sites, we're making some money, maybe we need a big site. So we, I rang Terry back up and I said, look, if you're still wanting to sell, he wanted $20,000 for it, if I hadn't mentioned that. twenty grand, like this 30 years ago, is a lot of money. Mm. Um, so we said yes. We paid him the money. Um, he was there, you know, showed us all around again. And we're there on the first day, first week by ourselves to do the collection, Thursday morning. And we rush up to the pinball machines, 30 bucks. Next one, 40 bucks. Shit, our hearts sunk. We just paid twenty thousand dollars, 
is this a long con? Has Terry been stringing us along all this time and to get the yeah. big payoff? Yeah. And our heart sunk. I went to uh, the video games that were there, there were some old videos, you know, 40 bucks. And I thought, this, this, this is not good. So Matthew was totally dejected. He went upstairs with the money he had to start counting the mostly $1 coins by this stage. And I said, I'll go down. I'll empty the jukeboxes downstairs. So I went to the jukebox in the gay bar, the front gay bar. It was an NSM satellite jukebox, uh, German-made NSM. And I opened the, the cash door, went to pull it out, and I thought, oh, it's stuck. Well, it wasn't stuck. It was full of cash. It had $650 in it, wow. a jukebox in one week. Wow. So then I went to the back pool bar where it was the only CD jukebox, pulled that open, $550 in it. So I thought, jukeboxes, where have you been all my life? <laughs> so then we went to the other jukebox and it had quite a bit of money in as well, not as much. So I, I staggered up the stairs. with that's It's a lot of weight to carry mm. uh, you know, $1,200 worth in $1 coins. Yeah. That's a lot of weight. So I stagger up the stairs and Matthew thought I was joking, I think, you know, with the weight. I put it on the table and yeah, we it, it changed the way we thought about pinball operating, jukebox operating from then on. Um, they opened more bars. We put more newer pinballs in. We put new stuff. We put tw twin drivers in that hotel. Luckily, each record jukebox we swapped there, we were buying row AMI CD100s. They were $10,000 from Armada, the Australian distributor in Sydney, $2,500 worth of CDs to fill it. So twelve and a half grand investment. We were, we were getting that back in three or four months. It was nuts. That place, and of course, I should point out the other thing, what we realised is most jukebox operators were old men. Like Terry was uh, 60s or 70 back then when he was operating his jukeboxes. Matthew and I listened to Triple J. We knew and understood the music. We looked at, you know, we're, we're looking at jukeboxes in this grunge bar and it's got Jimmy Barnes in it. We thought, you know, you check out the statistics, which I don't know whether these guys were doing. No plays. Why is it in there? Get it out. We put in... Nirvana, Hole, Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden. This was all that era. The Triple J Hottest 100 CDs. These boxes got to $850 per week, and we had five of them in there. Wow. So it, it was in the finish. We were pulling out three and a half. It was grossing $3,500 per week, just that one site. And this is 30 years ago. So. And you had a lot of pinballs there as well? Yeah, we started putting in pinballs. Uh, because the, the videos that took $30 or $40, they were just video games. Old uprights, video games. old uprights, 10 yeah. years old, old but, stuff. So did Terry have any pinballs in at the time? Yes, he did, yeah. He had a few um, in there, maybe maybe mousing around. And uh, uh, I, I, I just... I just can't remember because we we rotated them quickly and sold off some of the older ones. That's how we got into home sales. Uh, but we quickly put better machines in there, you know, Adams, Twilight, Star Trek, all the Bally Williams mm. stuff. In fact, we got, talking about Star Trek, Next Generation, the machine we got was different, we noticed, to others. We, were one of the, we had one of the first machines from Leisure and Allied, and they were a big customer of Bally Williams. Mm. In fact, that's how I got a tour of the factory in Chicago years later, mm. a few years later. Um, and um, our Star Trek was different to the others we started to see. Uh, instead of the domes on the guns lower in the playfield, the red domes, ours were flat. Right. Uh, it had differences. And, and we, we asked, we, we had to get, for some reason there was something we couldn't fix with boards or something, and they told us to take it back in. And I remember the tech coming out. He said, oh, you got the first one. You got the pilot game we got. So they'd flick out to a couple of their big distributors in Europe and the US, about mm. five machines, mm. put it on site. So mm. they'd operated it before we bought it. Mm. And, um, yeah, we, we'd often do that. We'd get a machine that was still near new, but if 
you could save, they were seven and a half grand then. If we could get them for six, we'd buy them for six. The Gottliebs were five and a half thousand. Uh, mm. I remember buying, you know, uh, Stargates, Shack Attacks, uh, yeah. Rescue 911s, all that sort of stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, wow. Just move back a little bit. Yeah. So I think you yeah. might be close to the mic. Yeah, yeah, sorry. That's all right. Um, so you had 15 pindles in the Prince of Wales? Yeah, 15 machines. We had a, I remember the twin drivers at the time, the Daytonas were 37,500 each, wow. big money. Uh, we bought a cruise in USA that went in there actually, which was, uh, we had all the Seeger drivers later in other places, but we put a cruise in USA in there. I think that was taking 1,200 a week. Uh, which was good money on a machine yeah. that you know cost you uh, thirty two grand. Now this place has stairs, right? Yeah, stairs, so five were you bars to and take finish. The drivers oh, upstairs. And no, that? drivers didn't go upstairs. We had a an old the one record jukebox we left in the venue was uh, an AMI Continental two. I might have sent you a yeah, photo. Yeah, you did send me the photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the what was called the piano bar upstairs, sort of the cruisy lounge. Then there was like a, a pool bar that that opened into, and then there was the main band room. So every Friday and Saturday night, you had you know eight up to eight hundred, a thousand people milling yeah, around up there. Yeah. So we had machines up there. We had a we couldn't fit a pinball in the the gay bar. Uh, probably not the best terminology to be using it, but that's what everyone called it back then. Uh, and it went off every every weekend night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and doing a service call on that when the jukebox stopped. That was an interesting service call, I can tell you. There was, uh, they were well and truly tanked up by that stage. I was going to say, the crowd um, <laughs> behaviour might have been a little bit challenging sometimes. It was, yeah, it was in the venues we were in, but we found they were the venues that made the money. You know, um, you know, I I'd, I'd trained as a boxer. It was boxing was one of my other loves, so uh, that was all. That was okay. That helped. We knew the security guards there. We got in for free for all the bands. You know, uh, Tricky Hole, Teenage Fan Club, all the local stuff. We just walked straight in because you know we knew the owners and that pub. We had other pubs around St Kilda. We had coin laundries anywhere we could put a machine. We we, we were in probably five coin laundries in St Kilda alone. And whilst there was attempted thefts, we never had we chained the machines to a pipe, mind you. Uh, so people think they could move the machine, that jerk on the chain, and they'd run. Yeah. But an interesting thing there, we had a we started to equip arcades as well. At that stage, we got pretty big. This is peak mid nineties. A lot of machines. <clears throat> And we had this uh, coin laundry just up from an arcade from Palm Tree Amusements in St Kilda that we supplied. Not all the machines, probably about half. And this was a, it shows you we're still operating, this was a stern Cosmic Princess. Now, Cosmic Princess was a stern game unique to Australia. Leisure and Allied wanted another game and Stern said, oh, well, here's one, basic artwork, you know, I don't even know whether the playfield's like another game or not, but it was a good money earner. So we had this stern Cosmic Princess and another one in this coin laundry Grey Streets and Kilda was where all the working girls would hang out. It was a pretty rough area. And it took good money. It was taking, you know, 100 bucks a week for, you know, a machine that was 10, 10, was it 10 years old, older, 15 years old. And um, and then after a while, the take dropped $20 down from 100 And it's the same machine. We thought, oh, this is weird. And week after week, $20, $25. One week we go in, and all the machines by the, at that stage, we had to be licensed by the Casino and Gaming Authority. We had to fill out all this paperwork pay $20 per machine, put a permit sticker on. You know, look, this is this this is crap. You know, look at all the... Look, the Casino and Gaming Authority are clamping down on uh, pinball operators. Meanwhile, these, you know, international crime cartels fleecing Crown Casino blind, and they turn a blind eye to it. It was just ridiculous. Anyway, this permit sticker come in one day. It was upside down and at the bottom of the play field. I thought, what the hell? And I thought, oh... Someone's taken the glass off. So sure enough, we tried and we could prize up the lock strip. So they were 
pulling the glass off, lifting the play field, getting the cash box and stealing the money. So clever bastards. So we, we, we fixed them up quick, but we suspected something was wrong, but we never gave keys to anyone. We had locking bars on the front. And we thought, how would they possibly get in? So that was clever. That's interesting. Were you having contracts with your location? No, we didn't. And that led to some trouble later on when we went to sell the company in the late 90s when all everything was winding down because we didn't have contracts. We had handshake agreements with the owners. We just said... <coughs> If you don't trust us, no contract's going to change that. We said 60-40. You won't have a brand new game every three months like some others promise you, but you will always have new, near new games swapped whenever you want. And if you don't like a game, we'll swap it. And that worked with every location. But it's hard to sell a business when you've got handshake, goodwill agreements. So in the finish, we had to sell them all off one by one. And were you doing all your own repairs? Most, yeah, most. By this stage, we um, had um, uh, we'd gotten into home sales. We found out that we could buy old bellies or sterns uh, for 150 bucks, not working from someone or from an old operator, fix them up and sell them for $750. And we were selling, uh, at the peak, more than one a week. Uh, John Mason at the Pinball Shop was probably the main home seller and Dell at Bumper Action Amusements was another big home seller, but the three of us all had ads in the trading post. Uh, we offered a 30-day warranty on-site, which uh, I think John Mason probably offered that or better, but just about no one else did. So that means if we, we'd shop them out, we'd re-rubber them, go through them, play them extensively. Um, <clears throat> they were pretty good, um, but every now and then you got one that would cost you a call-out on-site, so the profit on that game was almost gone. If you had to go out twice, it definitely was. And it was a couple of games, funny story, I remember. Um, it's, it's, it's a bad funny story but it's funny we sold uh, Cardwiz which I really liked to a guy up in the hills in, in Melbourne <clears throat> and he loved the game he'd always wanted one and uh, the, the guy had a, a prosthetic leg uh, he'd lost his leg uh, from the knee down and um, <clears throat> so Matthew and I would always deliver the machine we had a problem went out we thought we fixed it we could never find this problem that's the thing intermittent problems on electromechanical are a disaster because short of cleaning Every Jones plug, every switch, every stepper—you can't find it. You want a want a problem to happen and stay happening. And um, so we went there. I went through the game, played and played and played. Couldn't find it. Happened again. Thought, right, we've got to take this machine off location. We took it home. We went through it. We couldn't find the fault. In the finish, we said to John, "Can you go through it for us?" He was much better with electromechanicals than us. So we took it to the pinball shop. John went right through it. And so we're delivering delivering the game back, and we always delivered legs off. Uh, most often back box down, but not always. It depends on the journey. And we just slide it out of a ute and put the legs on. And uh, because this machine had had a lot of use, uh, one of the legs, the the screws were, were the the um, the where the the bolt leg bolts went in was cross threaded. And so Matthew's cursing and stuff, and he's going. This stupid leg, this stupid wonky leg, and I all of a sudden realised that the guy standing next to us had a prosthetic leg, <laughs> and I'm trying to tell Matthew to, to quit complaining about a bad leg. This bad leg, it's shit. <laughs> anyway, this went on for a few minutes, and I don't know whether the poor guy realised or not, but we felt so bad for him. But anyway, we delivered the machine back, and hopefully it didn't have any more problems. Oh, but, uh... <laughs> no. Freudian slip. Yeah. Um... 
So you were selling to the home market, and was that kind of like, did the, were, were sites dropping in revenue? Yeah, look, we found that the peak days of the mid-90s were fantastic. We, we didn't know it was a boom. We knew there was more and better pinballs than there had been five years before. Um, you know, machines like, you know, the Simpsons and Diner and Mousing Around and even things like Hook, they're okay, but they were nothing compared to the takes that Adam's family would make, the Twilight, Indy, um, we had all of those, Star Trek, Fishtails, uh, there was hardly a dud. Yeah, multiples. Yeah, yeah, multiples, um, <clears throat> particularly the good ones like Adam's. And in fact, we couldn't get any new, you know, by the time you realised they were good, you couldn't buy them new, so we had to buy them new. So we'd go to other operators, pay a premium for them, because we had good sites. Mm. And uh, we'd put Adams on, and oh, look, Adams is my favourite machine from that era. Twilight's great, Indy's good. Um, uh, I like Theatre of Magic. Uh, I love um, Creature from the Black Lagoon, just because of its theme, for obvious reasons, with the driving theme. But Adams was something special, and... <laughs> The reason we think it was, we used to watch players, what we do in some of the busy bars at night, we'd sit there at the start of some nights and we'd feed our jukeboxes. Because once the music started playing a bit, people would continue it playing. Nothing worse than a bar with no music. So we would start that and in the finish we'd actually give crossed dollar coins with a black text across on it to all of our bar people in the, the best bars for them to start the jukeboxes at night and every week we'd give those coins back to them. So, but in the start, we were feeding jukeboxes, and I noticed I watched them playing Adam's Family. And when you know, when you get to multi ball and it, it goes showtime, and the, the lightning at the top, what I noticed is people looked, unlike any other multi ball that made it, all, all the other players, people in the bar, they would look, what's going on? What has he or she done on that game? to make it special? And I think that was its key ingredient. Yes, it had a great play field, great theming everything else but that showtime that was magic you know that got them in and then everyone else wanted to get showtime yeah yeah, yeah. so you were buying them brand new uh, yeah we did a mix we did some new but we we bought many used we we didn't want to be we'd been caught with some machines that didn't take much money that were like hook never worked for us for example mm. you know i know it's considered better now we got sick of going hook 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 that just mm. meant to us no money no money no money mm. you know mm. get this machine mm. to any site it, it, so we'd sell those ones off quickly um so we bought a lot used and we bought Gottlieb's new, we did buy some Bally Williams new as well, but the vast majority used because we just found other operators with lesser sites than we had. We had some great pub sites in St Kilda, Brunswick, Fitzroy, and we'd put our best machines there, then feed them down to footy clubs, cricket clubs, whatever, um, bars. And um, yeah, so we, uh, I'm trying to think. You see, I don't think we bought, well, we didn't, a lot of those Bally Williams, the majority we bought used, and that's how we got the multiples. Because when we found one that was making money, they weren't available new. We'd go to the Leisure and Allied showroom and buy them from the showroom, but they'd already been on a site for six months or four months or something. Yeah, so um, they were the best money makers. And to answer your question, um, yeah, they all the takes started to drop off. The twin drivers, the Sega. Um, you know the, the Daytona boom who was had crested. You know we we're into Sega rallies. We had Sega rallies then, and um, you know Scud races had come out, and uh, the machines. And I think I think Bally Williams would admit this themselves. They sort of hit a, a rough patch where their sales dropped, but the machines weren't as good. We were buying some Gottliebs, and one thing we always did that we noticed majority of other operators didn't do is they bought their machines on terms on high purchase. We always, if we thought, if we couldn't pay cash for a game, we wouldn't buy it. 
So that was another reason for buying used. So we never had any loans. And when it started to slide, 96, 97, 98, when it all started to slide, man, they, they were they were disappearing fast. They, they had to hand their machines back because they couldn't make the repayments on mm, them. Mm. Um, so we could sell ours. And then we, we had big home sales then. And in fact, uh, I'm not sure whether John Mason shared it with you, but he cruelly, very cruelly sent me an invoice that we'd sold him in Indiana Jones for $1,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he went through a big bag of invoices. Oh, yeah, look, he's good. We've got invoices too, my he brother. He read some of them out on his interview, so you'll hear him. Oh, about it. it'll make me cry because we sold him. Not only was John and I into collecting games, you know, I had uh, electromechanicals and, you know, kept quite a few belly pinballs, quite a few rifle games, and, you know, I would sell to John and uh, bought a couple of things off him, but more it was the other way around. Uh, he's, he's, I sold him a Bonanza, Williams Bonanza rifle, which was a great, great gun game. We never sighted any of the electromechanical guns because I didn't want them on site. We just had them in the workshop, you know. I was uh, going to ask you, you, you obviously hung on to a few in your collection. Your yeah, we had collection. a few. Even here at the drive-in, in addition to video games and shooters and stuff, we had pinballs here. And I, I just remember, because we have them on free play in our... Uh, every operator listening to this now will think we're crazy. But we put our videos and pinball machines on free play in our drive-in snack bar, which is like a restaurant, like a fast food for people that don't understand what it is. Um, and we thought it's a good way to get the kids to run over to the snack bar, play the free games, to get on them fast. It brings them and the parents close to the food. So get them out of their cars, get them to come over to the snack bar. So we thought as a lost leader, and people, I heard in one of your other podcasts, it's true, even though they're on free play, people still put money in them. You know, so you've got money to pay for repairs and things. But the kids with a pinball on free play, and I particularly remember Adams, we had others, Someone would start the game. They, some of them couldn't even see over the, the, the glass. And all they would do was bang the flippers. Bang, 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 bang. All night. It would drive you nuts. And you'd, do a, you'd have to do a flipper rebuild every four weeks because the thing was just ruined. And we thought, no, we don't want them wrecking our pinballs. And we had shooters in there with the guns going clack, 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 clack. So we, got, so we, had, we started to have a few rules in our businesses years ago. One was we stopped delivering jukeboxes and amusements to anything upstairs. We just... I nearly got squashed when Matthew lost the grip on a big, uh, heavy Challenger video cabinet that weighed a ton. Coming down the stairs, it slipped off the trolley. I ducked and the thing crashed over me on the flight of stairs. It would have done damage if it hit me. And we were, the jukeboxes weighed a ton. Mm. You know, we had row AMIs, uh, they're all mostly CD by this stage. Uh, we had, we bought Wurlitzers brand new there. Uh, the Wurlitzers we got because they were more compact. Uh, they were a bit cheaper than the rows. They were about eight grand, and they had 400 watt amplifiers rather than 260 watt amplifiers that the row AMIs had. So sometimes we we find the right bars for the Wurlitzers, and they're a bit easier to move. So they were the two CD. I don't think we had any other brands. Seaberg uh, weren't much competition. Uh, the early Seaberg CD jukeboxes were. You know, they were from another era. They were antiques, really, from the late 80s. So were the Pioneers. They were quickly pushed out by the rows. Most of us jukebox operators had uh, rows, Rockollers, and Wurlitzers, mostly rows and Rockollers. So we had Rockoller as well. I like the Rockoller brand. Uh, uh, for a for a slap and play style jukebox, they were reliable. Otherwise, the Seabergs. We haven't spoken much about jukeboxes. The NSM satellite that we had in the Prince of Wales turned into a disaster very quickly because it was very susceptible to seven inch record size. And if they varied slightly on some of the new pressings of old recordings, there was a place in Tasmania called Automatic Music. I think Irwin was his name, Ir Ir Irwin Boot was his name. We got a lot of records from him, you know, because we're big jukebox operators. 
And uh, if the sizes varied, it would the NSM, we couldn't figure out why it was jamming because it would reject the record, go back and stop. We were called in, jukeboxes jam, go in, we couldn't see anything wrong. And I was only sitting there watching it play with the door open one night, I could see what was happening. Thought, Shit, what have we got this in our busiest bar for? Got that out, put a CD jukebox in there and put these ones down to cricket clubs and stuff. But the row AMI record jukeboxes were very reliable. Um, the Rockola record jukeboxes were very reliable. The NSM wasn't. Did you find some venues wanted the retro vinyl players? Yeah, and some, some weren't so fussy. Yeah, correct. Uh, we moved that AMI Continental out of the Prince of Wales when the ownership changed. We stayed with the new owners, but they weren't very nice people. Um, they were um, the sort of businessmen we didn't like to deal with. Well-known Melbourne business family. They've since sold the venue, but they're well-known in hospitality. Um, we never felt comfortable with them. We always had a good business arrangement. Handshake, you tell us what you want. We'll tell you up front what's possible and what's not. These guys were. They got someone else in to, first of all, take over the amusement machines, which we found was their accountant, who knew nothing, because the people in the bars there told us that the takes dropped to half. They got someone else to run their jukeboxes, and he didn't understand music, and again, their take went to half. But they were transitioning that pub into from a grunge... Uh, working class hotel into a, an upper class food and accommodation venue that's fine that's business so uh you know we prefer to deal with people that we want to deal with and the original owners there moved to another big pub in fitzroy called the greyhound which has since been demolished but yeah that was a great venue for amusements as well and in fact there's a well-known um well-known comedians and musicians hung out there and one of them who's just had a documentary made on him fred negro he headed a few bands uh one of them called the notorious fuck fucks um, mm -hmm. played in all those St Kilda pubs and he also wrote a comic strip called Fred's Pub which appeared in the street press magazine one of the street press magazines and in fact he wrote about us he called us the jukebox men with funny things happening with jukeboxes we had row MIs after they got a lot of use the lasers would start skipping and it would skip tracks and songs and uh, uh, I forget what the cartoon or comic strip read but the jukebox was saying funny things and uh, yeah so that was great to be written up in a comic strip I bought comics as a kid never thought I'd appear in one that sounds cool yeah. that sounds cool um, you've got a few at home you've given up yeah 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 sorry I've, you've, I've had you've a, kept some of your favorites. a lot over the years yeah I sold down I, I would have had 15 <clears throat> rifle games uh, mostly Chicago Coin, but also uh, Midway and Williams. I uh, love those games. Lots of electromechanical pins. They've come and gone over the years. With the drive-in, there hasn't been as much time in the last 20, but I've got uh, Mata Hari, my favourite 70s-era pinball belly. I've had, we had multiples of that. We had three, and this one I've got. the best back glass, best cabinet, and best play field from all three. So it's a bitzer, but it's nice. nice. Uh, we've got a very nice, Matthew's house, uh, still the best strikes and spares I've seen. It's just it's just beautiful condition. I don't know how we managed to keep this one in such good condition. Again, we had a few, but we could pick the best. Um, uh, what else have I got? I've got a, uh, a jumping jack Gottlieb. I love the Gottlieb. In my opinion, electromechanicals, um, Gottlieb ruled 50s, 60s, 70s. Coming into the 70s, Bally that had some good games, they started to come up. And games like Captain Fantastic, Wizard, uh, Fireball, they're fantastic games. And probably they weren't as consistent as Gottlieb, but they had some better games. And the moment it went electronic, and we had games right from 8-ball, uh, people know it as the Fonzie Pinball, Believe it or not, it wasn't a licensed machine. They just copied, thought they'd get away with it, and in the end they had to pay Paramount because the likeness was too much. And um, 
Roger Sharp talks about that in in some of his interviews in that that pinball magazine that. Uh, yeah, he was one of the first to start the licensing agreements with pinballs and things like Adam's family, you know, fantastic. Nearly met Roger Sharp, went to his office, knocked on the door at the Williams Belly plant, but he was out that day. And we had a tour by uh, Joseph Dillon, who was in charge of uh, WMS Industries. He worked for Nick Nicastro and ran all the pinball side. So we were there as guests at Winball, uh, at, at Williams Bally Pinball. Did you write and say that you were coming? And, and uh, yes, yeah, we had, we had to tee it up. And in fact, I didn't know until after that they'd called Leisure and Allied, their major distributors in Australia, and said, who are these guys? And they said, yeah, they're good customers. You know, let them in sort of thing. I imagine that's how it went. So not only that, um, we got a welcome Mr and Mrs Kildary written above the entry and the, the text light thing going across and Joseph Dillon himself met us, toured us around the whole morning. We had lunch in the executive room. We saw all the planning areas and design areas, but their manufacturing had moved. This was the old United plant, by the way. That goes back to United uh, who made, who were most well known for the bowling games, shuffle alleys and bowling games that Williams took over. Bally's plant was literally almost just across the road, the old Bally plant, so we saw that as well. But this was Williams headquarters. But their manufacturing had moved about 100 kilometres north to a place called Waukegan, Illinois. And so when we come, come out at lunchtime after lunch, there's a stretch limo waiting for us. And uh, Joseph Dillon kindly said, this is yours for the rest of the day. You've got a tour of the manufacturing plant or whatever sites you want to see in Chicago. This is yours, you know. So wow. it was fantastic. So we really appreciated that. Uh, and we did, you know, we had lots of Bally Williams pinball machines. And, uh, you know, even the ones we used were always buying parts. You know, we were good customers of, of them. So you went up to the factory, did you? Went up to the factory yeah. and uh, the deal was we couldn't take any photographs because the machine that was on the line had not been released. Uh, and straight away I could see what it was. It was scared stiff. The second Elvira, I think it was the second Elvira machine, second machine to yes, feature her. Yes. And, uh, yeah, fantastic. And, um, yeah, they... Parts came in from all over the US and Mexico and they did wiring of the looms there and the bits of solenoids were made somewhere, the brackets somewhere else, and they all come in in these different parts of the factory and as that moved down the production line, the machine took more and more shape and out the end spat these machines and there was piles of them sitting there. I forget the machine that was before that. There was still some of those sitting there. I'd have been to... like Junkyard or something. Or... <sighs> no, it wasn't that. It was... Um... Johnny Mnemonic. Could have been Johnny Mnemonic, or was it Red and Ted Roadshow? Oh, Roadshow. So one of those games, there were stacks of those. That was the one that had finished a few weeks before, and they hadn't finished yeah. shipping them out. So they just started on the production of Scared Stiff, and uh, it was amazing to see. I'd always wanted to see. But while we are in Chicago, we also took that time. We went to the old uh, Chicago Coin plant, which was still there. It's now demolished, but it was there as in use as a glass factory. And, of course, one of the reasons that Chicago Coin is my favourite company is the lineage you can follow right through to Stern today. It's the only one you can follow all the way back from 1930 when um, uh, two, two, two partners, um, Gensberg and Wahlberg, formed uh, Chicago Coin Industries and uh, the other Gensberg brothers started Genco and their factories were almost next to each other in Chicago and later on Chicago Coin bought Genco. I don't know whether you had any old Genco pinballs in New Zealand but they were around here not in Melbourne. Much. Not much. I know that's where Steve Cordick started off. Correct, yeah, he was. Uh, Harvey Heist. Correct, that's um, right, yeah. But uh, there may be some around but yeah, they're hard to get, yeah. hard to find. Yeah, so when Chicago Coin or Chicago Dynamic Industries crashed in 1976, two things happened. Uh, Gary Stern took over the plant uh, to re-emerge as Stern Electronics. 
And most of the people and the talent went off to form Game Plan, who made some very good pinballs. And of course, Roger Sharp, you know, did design work for them. So that's how Chicago Coins split. So of course, Stern Electronics, it went down in the mid 80s, sort of re-emerged similarly as Data East, then Sega, then Stern. So you can sort of follow that lineage all the way through, where unfortunately, Bally, Williams, Gottlieb, they all just stopped. That was that. Yeah. And whilst the uh, WMS industries still exist today, they don't make pinball, unfortunately. So, so when you, you were talking about the drive-in movie theatre, um, that was 20 years ago that you... Yeah, I'd, I'd worked in drive-ins for Hoyts. I worked in cinemas and multiplexes, but I worked in Hoyts drive-ins. Originally, they'd had jukeboxes in their snack bars, but no amusement games, and then they had pinball games. And their pinballs in the cinemas and... Um, uh, drive-ins earned so much money. Another big company in Australia that was called Goddard Novelty Company, they were the Gottlieb distributors before Leisure and Allied came, uh, became big. And Hoyts made so much money out of their machines, they bought Goddard Novelty Company, they bought them. And of course, it had been, um, uh, they'd uh, overcooked overcooked the, uh, the takings and all these places. I actually have some of this paperwork, Hoyts were throwing it out and I grabbed it. I have a little story actually, Gunnar. To, when I interviewed Gunnar the other day, um, we we I put the microphones away and I was just scrolling through photos of pinballs on my phone, and I had an old one of me with my Charlie's Angels. Oh, fantastic! Now, now he said, "Oh, let me tell you a story about Charlie's Angels, and I'll tell it now." So when Leisure and Allied bought the distributorship for Gottlieb, um, they well they inherited. They didn't really want to continue with Gottlieb, I don't think. That's right. And they inherited a container load of brand new inbox Charlie's Angels machines, 32. They, they had arrived and they were yet to be sold. And Ledger and Allied weren't that interested in all these brand new Charlie's Angels games. So they sold them off for 45 a pop. Wow. $45 per unit brand new inbox Charlie's Angels games. And I said, man, were people buying multiples? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they were, <laughs> said Gunnar. Well, we ended up with a few of them. I think we had two or three Charlie's right. Angels. And, uh, in fact, one of them... <laughs> oh, you, want, you, you asked why I preferred um, Bally and Stern. Well, just, just be, in those days, just because of the reliability and you could swap the boards, of course, Stern used the same operating system as Bally, other than the MPUs, you could swap. So we would swap, you know, voltage driver boards, sound boards, they were the same. Yeah. So we would swap those. We had a few Williams, but not many, and we had Gottliebs, and we had so much trouble keeping some of them reliable. And one was a Charlie's Angels, and it was knocked around in the finish. I thought, we're parting this out. So I kept... The back glass, and it's still at my ex-wife's house today, yeah. along with the Harlem Globetrotters back glass. Yeah, well. that's interesting. We didn't touch on that. You were operating older Bally's and Stearns. Yes. But you weren't so much operating the older Williams and Gottlieb. No. And no. there's that reliability aspect. Yeah, look, I like some of the Williams games, particularly things like Black Knight and uh, Phoenix was a good game. But in Australia, they weren't as common as Bally and, and Stern. Stern was very popular in Australia. Uh, and they made money. And people wanted, you know, things like Memory Lane, Stars, um, what was that, Undersea Water? Sea Witch. Sea Witch with that back glass. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, they were really good home sellers and they were as reliable as Bally, the same operating system. And we, because we had so many, we got more familiar with them and we could just tell, you know, with the, the LED flashing on the board, you know, you count the flashes and we got so good. If it did three mm -hmm. flashes, you knew what the problem was likely. Got to five flashes and stopped. Well, you knew it was the Molex connectors, you know, all this sort of stuff you got to know. And Meteor was manufactured. Yeah, Meteor, well, yeah, yeah. Leisure and Allied did a 
assembly of stern games here and the one special one they did i mentioned was cosmic princess mm. we had hankins as well we had all the hankins mm. we had uh empire strikes back we had fj holden uh i, th I think we I think we had how's that uh, we, we didn't operate those. They used the Gottlieb operating system from memory at the time, and we flipped those. And we had... So I love things like Haunted House from Gottlieb, but I just thought, oh, I just can't keep these reliable on site. So mm. we would sell those. So we we saw a lot of Joker Pokers, very popular game. I noticed it's very highly rated on the internet pinball database. I liked it as a game, and I didn't think others did, but it's a good game to play. Mm. It was... Probably the one of the biggest sellers of the early Gottlieb electronics. But as I mentioned, once the Bellies came in here, they, they eclipsed Gottlieb and they stru struggled compared to what they had prior to that. And Williams were always sort of the threat. Look, Chicago Coin, there was many pinballs as well, but I could tell by looking at Arcade, they'd have one or two Chicagos or Sterns, whatever era it was. Um, a few Williams... And you know, stack of bellies. And Gottlieb's. you named your business Chicago Amusements. Chicago Amusements, yeah. Well, we realised all the pinballs came from Chicago, and Chicago Coin was my favourite uh, brand. So um, yeah, that's that's what we called it. And uh, in fact, uh, I'm not sure whether I have any of the business cards left, but I noticed John Mason has under the glass. We probably yeah, game probably comes. I, from I us. gave him one of my business cards. He's going to put one of mine on his game. <laughs> Fantastic, <too>. yeah. Look, <laughs> it's like his scrapbook. Yeah, John is one of the the few like. Um, Del Reese, uh, probably ourselves in a smaller scale that were, not only it was a business, but it was, it was a hobby as well. And, uh, you know, there's lots of good hobbyists, um, like, for instance, Jeff Harrison was at John's get-together last week, who I was talking to as well, and I know him from the cinema business, because he went from the record business, he had a very well-known record store, Gaslight, Gaslight yeah, yes. then went into Umbrella Entertainment, who distributes DVDs, but also theatrical films. So we have a lot in common, and his collection is second to none of coin-op. It's amazing. It really is good. So yeah. let's talk about the movie industry for you, the collecting of movies, um, yeah. working as a projectionist. Yeah. So you, you were working in drive-ins, and then you bought your own enterprise? Drive-ins and cinemas. I started off working for Grady Union, started at 16. I uh, would work after school as an assistant projectionist at the Forum, the Russell, the Bursey cinemas in Melbourne. Uh, then I went to, I got my projectionist licence, uh, RMIT. You had to, and it's the government licence, you had to be a licensed projectionist to work in Victoria in cinemas then. Went to Hoyts, worked in drive-ins, their city complexes that had lots of machines. Hoyts Mid-City and Hoyts Cinema Centre would have had 30 machines in each so they had a lot of machines there um, as well in the city at that time um, mutual bowl transformed into invaders village bought uh, village brought out a brand village cinemas called flashback there was 10 four amusements and even when i was working in the city in the mid 80s there was an amusement place in this rundown parking garage called 222 russell street amusements it was big and it was run by golden west and of course they still had lots of electromechanicals. So even in 1984 and 85, this place was full of electromechanical guns. Like I remember playing Chicago Coin, Twin Skeet Shoot. Um, they had Lost World uh, Bally there. They had um, um, oh, a whole lot, all old Bally's from that era, Stearns, Williams games they had as well. And this is like 1985, you know, time had passed it by but I loved it so I'd go in thread up the projectors in my cinema get in early go there play for half an hour get back in time and, and run the show <laughs> that's cool and then talk about how this park came about well we my brother and I had always loved um uh, been interested in business I ran a 16 mil uh school holiday cinema in a, in a hall in Bayswater for a few years to get a taste in addition to working at Hoyt's 
tried to open a drive-in first, reopen a closed drive-in back in 1990. Um, the, the, the proposal didn't get up. The landowners said no, and you know I was fairly young at the time. Uh, but by the time Matthew and I were in our 30s, we could see the amusement business winding down. We always wanted to have our own business, cinema or drive-in. Village originally had 40 drive-ins in Australia that they managed or owned. Had they gone all the way down to one, and I was my role was national technical manager with Village Cinema Australia, so I was the, the head technical person in the company. Um, but I was also an area manager. I worked in operations as well, sort of like a jack of all trades. They'd sack an operations manager. Oh, who's, who's an area manager? David can do it. He knows how to do it. And so I inherited Coburg Driving, which by that stage was Village's last driving. They just closed a few of their others, and they planned to close that. And one day I ran into the chairman of the company there one night seeing a film with his daughter. I was there with my, my son, my oldest son. And I said, John, what are you doing here? John Kirby was his name. He said, David, same thing, watching a movie, you know, and uh, baseball cap on, you know, chairman of a multi, 20 countries village we're in. All started in Melbourne with his father, Rock Kirby. And here he is, baseball cap shirt, weeknight at the drive-in with his son. And he said, David, I hear you're the area manager of this site now. And I said, yeah, I've got some ideas I'd like to do. Gave him my business card. You know, I was uh, my role was much less, much more junior to him. He was chairman of the company, mm. and of course, you know, owned a big chunk of it too. And uh, I gave him my ideas for Coburg. I said, let's go out with a bang, not with a whimper. If you're going to close it, so he said yes, 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 yes to most of the ideas. We put some money into it. The place went nuts. It, all those years of us trying to promote drive-ins at Hoyts and Village to get them back where they were in the 70s, we couldn't do. All of a sudden, it was the right time. I think with these initiatives. You know, we put ads on every village cinema screen that I organised saying, hey, we still have a drive-in. You're in a multiplex, but try the drive-in. All this sort of stuff. The, the ushers, I had T-shirts made for them one summer, Coburg driving T-shirts. And one of the other area managers says, where are all my beautiful ushers' uniforms gone? They're wearing your bloody driving T-shirts, David. I said, whatever it takes, Brett, whatever it takes. So that kicked it. And when I saw the response to the drive-in, I thought, right, that's it. We're going to try again for a drive-in. Looked all around Australia, made offers on existing and closed ones, nothing worked out. This drive-in here in Dandenong had closed with Village in the 1980s, had sat dormant other than a Sunday flea market. I knew the market owners because they leased other drive-ins off Hoyts and Village and they gave us a chance. There was my brother, Matthew, myself and another partner, Anthony Madigan. So the three of us reopened it. Um, we sold most of our business Chicago amusements, in fact, uh, Matthew sold his house, sold my house ultimately. We had cars and things. We did well in amusements. Stupidly went out and bought a Porsche because we thought the days would never end. You know, we're making a lot of money in the mid 90s. They ended pretty quickly. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so we, we, then we didn't have a Porsche. Um, so yeah, we got into this drive in here. Um, and yeah, just for the last 20 years, I've put nearly everything back into it. You know, it's a lovely new snack bar now. We had amusement machines here. And uh, first few years were hard. You know, we worked nearly five and six nights and days a week, you know, to get it up. Drive-ins can only operate at night, but, you know, you're taking deliveries, you're fixing fences, mowing lawns, doing marketing, administration. And both my wife, Catherine, uh, works in the business as well in administration. Uh, Matthew's wife, Tilly, also works here. She does, uh, she heads up marketing and also operations. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, the four of us. Uh, we've got a general manager. Uh, prior to COVID, we had 80 staff. We had to close uh, for a lot of 2020 and 2021, unfortunately. Uh, we got back up to about 60-something uh, staff, but because we've announced our closure, we've actually sold this business and the land. Unfortunately, it will be developed. 
if people know Melbourne, we're sort of in the heart of the industrial area of the southeastern suburbs. And what COVID did, it pushed the land prices up. The offers we were getting prior to COVID, they doubled. So that brings expensive property taxes. The land tax now is over $1,000 a day. That's, that's one thing, one bill alone, $1,000 a day. It's $410,000 a year. Next year will be $500,000, next year six hundred. dollars So it makes it harder and harder to make a profit. You know, we'll probably be break even this year. Last year we made a small profit. If we were here next year, we'd lose because it's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's really? look, it's 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 a it's a bittersweet thing. As I tell people, don't feel sorry for us. Uh, we're getting the money back that we put into the business and more. Um, but I feel for our customers. We still have over four hundred thousand customers a year. So um, you know, it's not it's on, on its last leg. You said on a Friday night you had several thousand. people. Yeah, we had two thousand three hundred people in on Friday night. So. Uh, we have always been affordable. We've lifted our prices twice. We've lifted the food prices. They're still affordable, but what happens when we lift the prices is the revenue stays the same because you drop off some customers. We're in a there's fairly low socioeconomic areas close to us here, and when they could get in for twenty five dollars a carload for the family, now it's forty. That's something they can't afford compared to five years ago. So, look, it's. We're not, we're not saying never, we'll never do anything in the cinema or amusement business again, but we do need a rest, Simon, after after uh, 20 plus years here. It's shift work, it's calls, it's it's vandalism, it's um, cars smashing through fences, it's people falling over, it's irate customers, it's everything happens. When you've got that many customers, you know, you have, we, we only call the police once a year, but you know, it'll be domestic violence incident. I'm making it sound bad, but these are the things that is the owner of the business that make it not fun. You know, you only need to have, um, you know, all your toilets, brand new toilets covered in graffiti a couple of times. It's you're there for two hours with the thinners cleaning off the tiles and mm. you know so those you talked about the speakers getting stolen yeah drive it you know think everything gets stolen here anything that's not nailed down and it's again it's only a small percentage but uh, we used to laugh we put brand new pot plants in planters around here and also in the ground and the, the people from the trash and treasure market on the sunday first of all they'd they'd steal the little um plastic things and the little stakes we had around the plants and sell them on their stalls. The next week all your plants are gone because they've pulled the plants out, repotted them and sold them off. They're sold they're stolen and sold before you realise they're gone. You know, you can't put a mat out the front of your building, you know, like a, a mat to wipe your feet because they steal it. Yeah. They steal bins, they steal toilet paper. One of our managers went into the ladies' toilets a few weeks ago again on the market day and there's a lady under the soap dispenser with a bucket filling up her bucket with hand soap. Oh, so no. you know, it's this is just a small percentage. I just say these because yeah. they're, you know, amusing and things that people don't see. But we've got a, a really diverse ethnic community here um, you know Dandenong uh, was settled originally as an industrial suburb in the 50s because General Motors Holdens had their biggest manufacturing plant just up the road you can see it out the back here where it used to be Heinz had their biggest manufacturing here an international harvester trucks plant that plant's just been sold it's now Iveco trucks and you see photos of this suburb in 1956 you can see those three plants some new houses and our drive-in so the entertainment followed the, the work and followed the people. Well, so there's four screens here, isn't there? Four screens. Imagine a big 15-acre block, which it is, and a screen in each corner. We've got a central projection building. And we run. We used to run double features, which driving's always did in Australia and the US, but we found... 
people become more time poor and they wouldn't stay for the second feature, which generally had to be a bit older, a few months older. It couldn't be first release. So we stopped running double features and went to two single features a night on each screen. So we have eight sessions a night and we did that about 10 years ago and that, that increased the revenue. Um, Drive-ins have always appealed to mostly the same audiences. They love action, comedy and family films. And one of the things that led to the demise of so many drive-ins in Australia in the 80s, and you know Melbourne had 24 drive-ins, it now has three, but it had 24. And you could see them on any big corner. And you'd be driving in the 1970s and you'd see these great big boobs and naked ladies and naked men because the R-rated sex films were so popular in drive-ins. And of course you couldn't run these films, Case of the Smiling Stiffs and Sell on Kitty and week after week and then run 101 Dalmatians in the holidays and expect <laughs> the families all to come back. So they chased them away and whilst I saw this and the food wasn't great then in the drive-ins in the 80s that I worked at in the Hoyts drive-ins, wasn't good at all. My first trip to Los Angeles in, in the 1980s, I saw a drive-in screen from the freeway. So I intended to look at cinemas and drive-ins when I was there anyway, but I drove off the freeway, and as I'm getting close to this drive-in, I saw another screen, and we had twin drive-ins here in Australia, two screens, but nothing, nothing more then. Four, five, six screens at this drive-in. I stood on the roof of my hire car to look over the fence, thought I'm coming back here tonight. So I went back that night, and six screens running first release films on every screen in Australia. Every second week you'd run an older film. You know, you'd bring back Blues Brothers or um, um, Blazing Saddles or some classic Grease or something like that. And then there'd be a new film the next week, then not. But this was all first release. I went into the snack bar. It had um, food I hadn't seen before, Mexican food, tacos and stuff. And it was good. It was a young crowd. It was, uh, you know, uh, reflected the community that they were in. It was uh, Hispanic. This was in Orange County, part of Orange County where it was. It was called Stadium 6 Driving. It later expanded to eight screens. And I thought, wow, so it's clean, well run, good films, good food. Jeez, that's not hard to do. And uh, so that's when I come back with the idea that, you know, if we did that in a drive-in in Australia, that we would be successful, and we were. So you talked about being closed during COVID, 2020, 21. I did pose the question before. I would have thought with the social distancing of cars in a, a drive-in theatre, that would be a one entertainment um, opportunity that people could do under COVID. Well, in almost every state in the US and almost every other state in Australia, it was, but not here. Uh, as you know, Victoria had some um, very harsh restrictions and we, we certainly complied with them but we did complain behind the scenes and said, look, drive-ins are operating in every other jurisdiction. They were reopened again in New South Wales and Queensland and South Australia. Uh, in most of the states in the US, some had them closed for a while in the US, although there were stories on TV about them being very busy in Los Angeles at the time, which they were, because the, the ones in LA County had to close, but uh, San Bernardino County, Riverside, outside of Los Angeles County, they could open. So everyone was driving to those drive-ins. and. Yeah, so we weren't able to open. We got a, with our campaigning, we got a two-week head start on cinemas on two or three of the times when we reopened and we were really busy, really busy uh, summer of uh, 2021. That was huge. Our busiest summer ever, in fact. Um, so, yeah, people were tired of being stuck at home, were keen to come to the drive-in, and we were actually so busy, we were the busiest cinema of any type in Australia for a few of those weeks, beat every multiplex. We're a busy location anyway. We beat the majority of multiplexes each week. Um, but, you know, generally of the 400 theatres in Australia, we're around the 100 mark. Well, we're up top three. 
So it, they really wanted to come and see. So when you close in a couple of months' time? Yeah, it? a few months' time. We haven't announced a closure date yet, but it'll be mid-year. Yeah. And that's going to be the land's going to be used for warehousing? Yeah, look, where, where we're sitting here is, uh, as I mentioned, a peak industrial area. There's some massive new warehouses being built next to us and around us. Uh, you know, the largest Amazon distribution centre in Australia is very close to here. Uh, the largest manufacturing facility is... Um, I think in, in, in Victoria almost, is uh, um, Jayco Caravans, and they're also here in Dandenong. They employ thousands of employees. It's a massive plant, manufacturing plant. So manufacturing and distribution have always been attracted to Dandenong, but a big thing that's changing is uh, because the port of Melbourne is so busy, it's the busy, busiest port, I think, in the Southern Hemisphere as far as container shipping goes, they're now trying to reduce that congestion by bringing the containers via train, via rail, here to Dandenong to what's called an inland port, which is just a kilometre away from us here. So any distribution for the whole southeast of Melbourne and Victoria, in fact southern New South Wales, will now come on a train to here. It'll go through customs here and be put on the trucks right. in Dandenong. Mm -hmm. So if you're got a distribution centre, you want to be as close to that as possible. Yeah. So the high cost of the land has forced us out. If we were five suburbs further out, uh, we'd still be operating, Simon. Yeah. You, you, can't, you can't argue with change? No, and look, the land tax... <laughs> Like, it's no secret. It's designed to force the highest use of the land and a drive-in in 2023 in Dandenong, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Hey, David, it's been fantastic. Before we close, um, what about the, the getting back to pinball? What about the current market of pinball? Well, how do you see the industry at, as it is in 2023? Well, I'm very pleased that Stern and others, uh, Jersey Jack and the others, are still manufacturing new pinballs. You know, there's a number of companies, Haggis as well, of course. Uh, I'm very pleased because I didn't think that we would see that. After Williams Belly shut up, uh, I thought it was only a matter of time before they all stopped. Uh, so it's great to see them. It, I'm amazed that I think it's over 50% now are sold into homes. Is that right, Simon? Yeah, like well, I think it is primarily a home market. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, so I love seeing pinballs on location, and there is a place for them if they're in the right locations. There's a few big breweries in Melbourne and a few places that have, you know, some of the latest games. You know, if I see a, a Mandalorian or a, or a Munsters or something out there, of course I'll go over and play it. Um, I, I, think, I think the future's interesting. I, I think that... Um, uh, I notice you can buy some models now that don't even have coin mechs in the in the in the coin door, so you know they're being sold sold to home. Uh, Zach's Amusements, of course, are the big sellers here 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 in Melbourne. And I remember Zach when he was operating out of the Inkerman Hotel in uh, East St Kilda. There, he was uh, a part of the the board of um, the association, the Pinball Association that we were part of as well, which was a uh, an industry association for amusements, not just pinballs. So yeah, Zach certainly went on to bigger things from there. So look, I'm hopeful with pinball. I plan to buy some more pinballs myself. Uh, I recently bought a Gottlieb King Cool, uh, a game I'd never owned before. I just loved the look of it. It was nice condition. So I'll continue to buy some EMs and early electronics. I wouldn't mind getting a, you know, a, a Twilight to finally defeat that machine. Um, it was it's a fantastic game. Uh, some of the newer I would didn't keep one of your old ones. Uh, we did for a while, but over the years when they weren't being used, people would contact us, and mm. as I said, you know, people would say, you know, you keep an Adams family your favourite. <sighs> we we tried to. We had multiples, and the last one we had, uh, we got an offer for four thousand, and we sold it just before they zoomed up to ten and 15,000 yeah. but we always thought we could buy yeah, them again and exactly. you, you can you can you, you you buy and sell on the same market you know yeah. when when um uh, when I sold, I uh, also a car collector. When I sold one of my cars, my RTE38 Charger, my Bathurst Charger, when I sold that for thirteen thousand dollars back, you know, thirty 
more than 30 years ago, it paid off my home loan at the time. So it's all relative. Mm. And people say, yeah. oh, if you'd kept it now, it's worth 250000 Well, so it is, but my home loan was gone. It would have yeah. cost me a lot more to yeah. pay that off. So you buy and sell in the same market. There's no machine out there that I, I probably can't buy if I want to. You know, I, I've got, the, I'm, I'm not talking monetary, but I know where the machines are. I know collectors, I know operators. Um, you know, I, I know three of my friends have got Kiss pinballs at home. Like, I like Kiss, but it's not the greatest game. It looks good, and it's what people say when they talk about belly 70s, but uh, Matahari's the best playing game, you know, I reckon. It's, cool. it's, it's, it's great. So, I've yep. got a Matahari. I almost swapped it for a Vector. Oh, okay, good I, game I, too. I dangled the carrot. Uh, yeah. Um, they're still thinking about it. Um, right. So am I. <laughs> well, uh, Matahari's got the things I like. It's got two banks of drop targets. It's got a kick-out saucer. It's got, you know, those A and B lanes. Yeah. It's, uh, and when you, when you stand back, I think it was one of the very last chimes machines i think it was it probably is yeah, yeah. and um, yeah to stand back and hear it start going dong 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 with your bonus it's it's fantastic yeah hey it's been a fantastic talk thank you so much good time to finish now and uh, I've got to head to the airport. So um, thank you very much for making time today. Simon, I must say, I've loved listening to your podcast. They're the best pinball podcasts out there, and I've scoured the world. And I'm so so thrilled to be uh, a part of it. And hopefully I can do justice to some of the amazing people you've interviewed before me. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. One out of 15. Fantastic. Awesome.